0: I'm Heba Elias and I'm Siobhan Drew and And welcome welcome to Momentum, a Race Forward podcast, where we explore how racial justice work is showing up everywhere around us. Welcome back to Momentum, a Race Forward podcast, everyone. I'm your solo hostess, Siobhan. My co-host Hibba is on sabbatical. You know, I say that in a pleasant tone, but really I'm hating. I would love to have a little time away too, but I am actually, I'm just going to throw one up for Hibba and say, I hope that your sabbatical is refreshing. I miss you, but I also am ready to rock out the episode. I do want to acknowledge that we are hitting one year of the pandemic. And I know that that was emotional and is emotional for a lot of people, and I just want to acknowledge that. You know, for for everyone who can hear my voice at this time, and everyone who's reading the transcript, or however you are tuning in and tapping into this podcast, I want to encourage you. Um, I want you to know that you're not alone. You know, if you feel stressed, if you feeling if you're feeling the loss and I really hope that we can come out on the other side of this with a better, stronger plan for how we're going to support each other, whether it's via government or, you know, the mutual aid and all of what people are doing now. I just hope that we come out of this um, with more learnings and more of a supportive society set up than we went in. So I really tip my hat to everyone who's pushing for that to happen. Race Forward specifically is committed to that type of work as well. We do work on racial justice and racial equity through research, through practice. So if you've ever gotten involved in some of our trainings or our long-term cohorts where people empower themselves around racial equity and changing institutions, we really are committed. Shout out to everyone at Race Forward. There are so many different areas of work that people are working on and proud to know you and appreciate you. Speaking of Race Forward's work... Race Forward held an event, it was called After the Inauguration, Mobilizing for Racial Justice, and it was part of a three-part Race and the Movement Forward series that was focusing on discussing the Biden administration's first month in office and analyzing the steps that have been taken so far in crafting federal policy to address urgent racial justice priorities. The conversation was led by our team members, Leah Obias and Joelle Stewart. In that event, they were joined by Ramaya Davis, a student organizer with D.C. Girls Coalition. Dr. Amara Enya, policy and research coordinator for the Movement for Black Lives. Connie Huynh, healthcare for all campaign director at People's Action and national chairperson at Affirm. Alejandra Pablos, Alejandra is most well known for the hashtag Keep Ale Free campaign. So here's a clip. You can find the full event on our Facebook page and watch it there. The link is also in the show notes. So let's check the clip out.
1: Yeah, so the Movement for Black Lives, we're very intentional about using a Black queer feminist lens for all of the work that we do. And so that extends across the board it extends to our climate agenda, to our education agenda, to our overall vision for Black lives, um, which we, do, we have posted on the website. And that's basically our, our policy agenda. It guides all of our work. And so we're really intentional about wanting everything that we put out into the world to reflect that Black queer feminist lens. As it relates to the Breathe Act specifically, we know there's so much of this that's related to particularly women of color, Black women. So when we talk about ending no-knock warrants, right, so much legislation is about banning no-knock warrants just in drug cases. But we cannot think about Breonna Taylor, who till today, and one of so many, but Breonna Taylor is the the name that comes to mind when we talk about ending no-knock warrants completely. Sandra Bland. I mean, these are ending cash bail, the fact that folks are sitting in jail just because they could not Afford to get to pay to get out, where you have a system that prioritizes those who have money. It prioritizes the wealthy, and so we think of of Sandra Bland's name comes to mind when we think of our push to end cash bail. But just thinking about Corinne Gaines, thinking about how I mean, there's so many instances around the country of how Black women have been have really borne so much of the brunt of this country's obsession with incarceration, with policing. In Chicago, we had Rakia Boyd killed by a police officer. So many instances. And so we take all of that and it informs the kinds of policies that we craft. And it's part of the reason why we're so unequivocal in our push, why we're not content even to say reform. Like, no, I mean, it's the common term, the common terminology, but that's not what we're, that's, that's not our our end game. It's not reform. I mean, we, the, the spectrum of this state as it is and abolishing prisons, it's all part of this work of recognizing that there is a better society that we can build. And so even as we drafted, as M4BL drafted this legislation, and it's really, you know, we say we have this radical lens, but it's because we have a vision of a society where we are not destroyed and harmed by the systems that we live within and the systems that we live under. And so that vision we know is informed by our experiences, particularly as women of color, as Black women. And so it has to show up in the policies that we put forward. So that's how we make sure that what we're putting out there is specifically, I mean, it's if it benefits us, other folks will benefit, but we, we want to make sure that a Black queer feminist lens is sort of at the core of our work.
0: Deborah Gore Mann is Greenlining's president and CEO, where she oversees the organization's finances, management, governance, and partners with staff and board members to develop programs and policy strategies to advance racial and economic justice. She is the third leader in Greenlining's 26-year history and the first woman to lead the organization. Prior to joining, Deborah was the executive director of the San Francisco Conservation Corps, America's first urban municipal youth corps. She was also the managing director of Oakland Rise, a professional women's basketball club created to advance and provide a resource for women in sports. Deborah has an engineering degree and an MBA from Stanford, where she was the only African American woman in a class of 300 graduate students. She has worked across private, public, and political sectors to uplift low opportunity communities with funding team building, and financial resources. Gorman was raised as the middle child of a biracial, military, first-generation immigrant family. She was one of the first in her family to go to college and part of the first generation to receive a basketball scholarship for women student-athletes at Stanford. All right, Deborah, Hibba thinks that I'm cerebral, so... She would want me to start by asking you, she would want to know where you grew up and what your feels are about how you grew up and if your family influenced your choice of career trajectory.
2: Yes. So I think what's interesting is I'm biracial. So I'm Japanese and Black. Um, my father's Black. My mother is Japanese. I think that's interesting. And maybe why HIPAA thought it would be intriguing is particularly where we find ourselves in COVID with the AAPI community, you know, all the racism that's happening with the AAPI community and then the racism that's happening with the Black community. And as I sit in the middle of that intersectionality and now it's March and it's Women's History Month. So I think I'm in this trifecta of why, you know, what's important to me and how I've sort of developed. Um, and I would also add, you know, so that, that that allows me, I think, to have a perspective. So I've, I've written blogs and been, especially in the AAPI platform and talking about the, the role of communities of color and how we can be comrades and allyship, even though we may even in some cases be hurting each other. So I think that's one perspective that's interesting. Uh, and then in greenlining itself, you know, it's uh, we just celebrated 28 years and it's always had uh, a male. Uh, as a CEO and then, um, uh, and it's been men of color. So to have a woman and a woman of color is particularly courageous and bold for the organization. So, you know, I do always, uh, as I would ask my staff to just bring our whole selves to the table, whatever that means for you um, and not be in fear of imposter syndrome or being politically correct or being super woke, like just be your ethnic, multi-ethnic Multi religious, multiracial, multi gendered self, and that we can build community that way.
0: Oh, I love that because I'm a person who likes to interrupt. So now that I can be my full self.
2: There you go. There you <laughs> or go.
0: Or whether I like it or not, I just do it by accident. So um, I'm going to interrupt just to ask you Are you comfortable sharing where your folks are? Like, where did you grow up in the States um, and a little bit about? Your youth, or what set you on the path you're on?
2: So, my father was in the military. And so, as is with military families, when they travel a lot, they're in different countries. So, he was stationed in Japan in a very, if you know, if any of the military folks who have been listening, Okinawa is a big military base in Japan. And so, he meets my mother. Um, And he speaks as, you know, black male in the Air Force. So he's in that branch of the Air Force. He speaks um, four or five languages. And so he speaks Japanese. And it's so funny. And growing up, he used to correct my mother's Japanese, which was just hilarious. Um, And so they, you know, they meet and fall in love. And and the tragedy of this, though, is that, you know, my mother's side is just completely appalled that she would want to marry an American because, you know, now we're kind of in the 50s and 60s. So you're not that far from Pearl Harbor and the war. And even in California, we had Japanese internment, right? So there's big American, you know, racism and then African and then a Negro at the time, right? A colored person. So my mother was blackballed from her family. And then my father's side, they were equally just horrified that they, that he would marry uh, somebody who wasn't American and knew, you know, who was Japanese or Asian, or in that time, you know, it was Oriental. So you had colored and oriental. So now fast forward to the language we use now. So, you know, they were both just very committed to love because you had to, you know, really overcome your family issues. So when we come to the United States, we then are going back and forth, Japan and the United States. So for my first three, four years, all my pictures are very much Japanese. So I really felt like a little Japanese girl. Then we, when it was school age, we came to the United States for education, mixed race with Japanese accents. I mean, it was just all bad. It was all bad. So um, we stopped speaking Japanese in the house because we were, you know, now all the race that all of the racism. And so we, you know, very much socialized. Um, to accommodate the American system. So, you know, that gives you some context of the things that both my family sort of overcame and then me personally and, and that whole journey. And so when we were in the States, though, we came to Tacoma, Seattle area. So I'm from the Pacific Northwest, which, you know, even on our block and because we were part military, it was such a diverse block. You know, we had um, Asian families, black families, Italian families, mixed families. So even though I went to an all white school, a lot of my just literally on our three, four block radius was very, very diverse.
0: Wow. What a story. Um, I feel like it's partially a history lesson for folks too. I have to ask what strengths does a multi-degree person like you, you sound like you have so much tenacity. What strengths do you bring to your role in leading greenlining? And do you even have any weaknesses? hilarious. Of course,
2: we all have weaknesses. Um, I think in particular, to be able to, so what really attracted me to greenlining, right? I, I jokingly refer to myself as a recovering investment banker. So I worked on Wall Street for a little while and, you know, drank all that Kool-Aid. I was like, oh, I need to get sober. This is just crazy. <laughs> but, um, but it allowed me to to make some money, you know, to have an investment portfolio, frankly, to help my mother and father. Um, And then my father passed away with a massive heart attack, quite young at 54. So really, you know, I think having uh, made a little money allowed me to be able to support our families. And I think, you know, I think that's a very common journey that as you have some success, you know, you do want to lift out all of your family members and as many of your family members as you can. So You know, I've been in those rooms, I I feel so strongly about this. I've been in those rooms where I'm the only woman. I was an engineer as an undergrad, went to an engineering company, and I'd be the only woman and even the only person of color, not even black male engineers, not black men. And then, um, so wanted to always hold myself and carry myself in a very dignified way so that And smart and hardworking and all of the adjectives that go with that, because I knew that in some cases I would be the only one they'd be exposed to. So I always felt that, you know, I needed to work really now, probably the patriarchal model for all women. And I have now sort of realized that the Japanese side was also very strong in assimilation. You can maintain your culture at home, but you didn't boastfully, you know, projected in the workplace. Or... And then the oddest thing was, so I go to graduate school, which by the way, a white male mentored me. He went to Harvard, really wanted me to go to Harvard, like sent me on an all paid expense trip. And so I was like, Oh, I guess I'm going to graduate school. I wasn't thinking about graduate school. And when I got back into Stanford, I went to Stanford and in our class, how unusual is this? There were somewhere between 18 to 20 women, black women who were accepted and nobody came that year, but me. So in my graduates, my MBA class, I was the only black woman in my class, 300 plus. Now I think they're almost up to 400, but out of the 300. So it wasn't that they didn't let the women in. They went to Wharton. We all had gotten into the same. I too got into Harvard and I got into Wharton. I got into Kalevog. Everybody else went somewhere else. So I show up at Stanford. I feel like I always had to be ready because people wanted my perspective. And, you know, oh, what does the black woman (laughs) think? I think the ability to see multi different groups in a common way and to bring that together and push it forward, it has just kind of evolved in me as, you know, this core strength that I can do, you know, almost like I call it a bit of my superpower to be able to like see that point and that point and put these two things together to make it. And then the weakness side of it is sometimes, you know, you, you, you feel that burden and then, you um, You know, when people are like, you're just not doing enough. And I just go, you know, the fact that sometimes that collapses me. is just like, now, wait, you know, you know that you're good. You know, you put in the work, but it just is this vulnerability. And maybe that's being a woman and being, you know, the positionality of that. I, I just always struggle with this. That part of you would think, you know, now 60, I would be able to balance that, but it's still a very much a... A weakness that I I have now at least recognized it and said, Okay, hold on now, just you know, let that go. They they let it go. They they have an opinion. It's not your opinion. So
0: Well, thank you for that vulnerability. Your organization's name, Greenlining. Do you want to start with telling us about that name or telling us about What redlining is, which seems to be the opposite of what greenlining is, how would you want to approach it?
2: And, you know, that is that's a, a bit of a history lesson, right, that the term redlining goes way back to actually the 50s, 40s and 50s, when the U.S. government, you know, we were coming out of this huge recession. It was actually the depression. And there were no jobs, it's just going to sound so much familiar to where we are today, but there was no jobs, So the government said, oh, we're going to put, we're going to do these, you know, the new deal. So there were jobs, work jobs uh, that they called the conservation, the cores, the civic cores. And then we're going to provide housing, right? That there's going to be this FHA, the Federal Housing Agency. And at the time, this is what's so crazy that very elite few could buy houses. The mortgages were only five to seven years. So you had to have this huge down payment and these huge mortgage payments. And the FHA gets established and they say, look, will government back this so that the bankers, right? They're like, well, that's too risky. All these people who are out of jobs, but they wanted them to have homes. So FHA... Set up by a government, says you full faith in government behind home loans, stretch those home loans out to 30 years. And now it's affordable, right? So sure enough, Americans start buying up homes. Except if you're black, except if you're a woman, you could not get a mortgage payment. Didn't matter if your daddy left you millions, your mommy left you millions, you could not. And so the government then basically sanctifies banks saying black, brown, yellow women are risk, they're a, credit risk. We're not going to give you loans. And so they started, they'd take out maps and they would red line. So the map would have green neighborhoods to invest in, where the white folks live, where the white males have good jobs, yellow, mm, low-income white folks, red people of color. We're not going to make loans and they will have to live in public housing and just rougher neighborhoods. So That's where the term banks literally. So you can see these 1940, 1950 maps where the banks have redlined neighborhoods. And sure enough, you look at the demographics and it's black, brown folks who are there. So, that redlining then perpetuates itself, not just through credit. So, now banks have said we're going to do that. Now, redlining becomes evident in healthcare, that those same communities are clustered together and labeled. And then now it becomes evident in jobs, in, in transportation. Bus lines don't go through that neighborhood. So, now redlining is this almost capitalistic, uh, built in racial supremacy model. And so greenlining then, you know, our initial founders doing sit-ins and demanding banks to make these loans so that people of color could own homes, but not just in these, you know, ravaged neighborhoods, but anywhere. And so greenlining evolved to be that answer to redlining. And then now fast forward to COVID. If you take a COVID map, it looks like a redlined map. Because those same neighborhoods, right? They haven't been invested in. The generation that did buy houses were devastated by the subprime market in 2008. So the homes we did lose, we lost. And now COVID then sort of has that same, the vulnerable population based on health outcomes. And now we're like greenlining lining more so than ever before is what we're trying to build. I'm so
0: happy because I feel like it helps the listeners because everyone's at a different place in their journey, understanding the history that not all American schools are teaching and people, not everyone went to American schools and everyone's not on the same page. So I love when you give that type of context. So redlining, we're clear that it was encoded, um, and allowed to be encoded by banks in partnership with government and then the it government sanctioned it. Sanctioned it. And then it extrapolated out so that it can be evident in healthcare insurance and lack of transportation. If you try to get a car and your maybe your zip code, they know that you might come from a neighborhood of color. You might have to get a higher car loan. You All the things we've it. seen, right? You got it. You so, got it. When you're thinking about communities of color and people of color, specifically that term, is there a specific definition that green lining um, goes with in terms of that term people of color? Because I know that for some folks that term is new and for other folks who've been organizing for a long time, that term is very familiar to them. Is there anything you would want to say? Are there any tensions or in the use of it when you're working with communities or does it help you to define your work?
2: I think what you're getting at is so right on that it's an evolving term, right? They used to say, you know, colored people and they meant black people, but colored also included Latinx, Asian Americans, and and even within the Asian American, you know, from Korean to Pacific Island to Japanese to Chinese to like even within that. So, so now I think these terms are meant to embrace a larger group. And so used to be minorities. So it's intended to mean those communities that are non white.
0: That was really helpful. I love that phrase, embracing term. Okay. So for greenlining in the work that greenlining is doing, is it more of a federal focus? Largely, is it a state and federal focus in terms of policy work um, specifically?
2: I would say that it's really grounded in community. We will go to the community and say, what are the barriers keeping you from? Oh, well, you know, credit or I don't but no intergenerational wealth to hand down. So we it's localized. And we do focus primarily on the state of California because California is so reflective of the country that we have coastal cities. Absolutely. We have urban and we have central cities, you know, central California, we have farm, we have technology. We have almost every kind of community that is reflective of the whole country. And so when we can solve for rural urban Uh, coastal, inland, desert, wildfires, drought, we are creating solutions and frameworks for the whole country. So I would say we are a state with a national influence. So some of the framework and some of the policies that we develop here get carried forward nationally. We've been advising on frameworks around racial equity. We've been advising on environmental impact as it relates to economic impact and joining that conversation together and providing it because we lived it. In California. And then what we're really and we are feeling so validated now because we have always had a localized focus that it didn't matter if we were, you know, on a coastal community of color or an inland or a farm community. We had localized it. And now the movements are very local.
0: This leads me to a question that we somewhat touched on earlier, but we could probably go into more. For myself, um, coming from an immigrant family that's from the islands in our family, for example, we have Jamaican Chinese people and we grow up with mixed race people being, I guess, common in your family. Not really a shock. Right. But also like you're also black. I run into people a lot that they get disheartened when they see intra racial conflicts They're dissuaded from joining into movement work because they maybe don't believe or haven't been exposed to Black, Asian solidarity work more broadly. Can you talk more about what's happening there and in Chinatowns across the country where folks are concerned about the Asian community more broadly, the Asian American community, and they're suffering over what the past administration did in terms of blaming Solely this virus on China, and then using it as a way to kind of stoke racial fear and hatred against Asian folks. It's a it's a it's a fraught situation. People are scared, and also I wonder if it turns away people who might otherwise be interested. Does Greenlining or you um, have any policy advocacies or any other type of advocacy around not turning an already stressful situation into a worse carceral situation? in a way that we might not be able to come back from. And I want to be sensitive about this question because, I mean, there's real people grappling with these fears and with these um, incidents. So,
2: And so more specifically, if folks don't have context, that in Oakland in particular, young Black males were attacking. And in one case, an Asian grandfather was killed. So they were pushing them down. They were robbing them and exploiting this, the almost, you know, the sacred community of elders, both, you know, you care and at the same time, you're um, concerned because it's both your community that's committing the crime and the community that the crime is being committed. So that's the context. So where we have and where we hope that we can have the conversation is about that Framework that makes that exist. So if you believe there is scarcity, that there's only a limited amount and that we all have to fight each other for that scarcity, then that is going to pit community against community, right? You know, we now know, thanks to Bernie Sanders and the campaign that they're, you know, we're all scrapping for the 1%, then it's going to put community against community. We are trying to engage in conversations that don't believe that hype, don't believe that narrative that there's only a little bit and we all have to fight each other for it. And also that how your neighborhood has come up or where you live in your community and the hostility and the angst that you feel that makes it so that you think you need to go knock down or rob uh, an Asian elderly is also part of the, the narrative that you've bought, right? That I believe that the Asian community is doing better than the Black community, so I'm just going to go take it. And that in and of itself, for the Asian community, they'll tell you too, you know, that that model citizen, look at the Asians did it, what's wrong with the Blacks? Is intended to pit us against each other, and that the Asian community themselves are, you know, dealing with how to have their own and stand in their own identity and their intergenerational strength. So once you start to have that dialogue, you know, the victimization is like, yeah, why is the the black community believing they need to go as opposed to, you know, go to city hall and go to banks and go to the governor? All right. Instead, I'm going to target my Asian neighbors because I feel that I am being impacted. So look at what has created those of us who feel we have to, you know, attack or, or steal or take what we believe because we have been so deprived, because it's so unsafe for me just to walk the streets as a black person at night or because it's so that I live in a space of fear, so it's okay for me to create fear. Like, there's so much of that. Then when you start talking about that, then we are in common space. And so we came out, right? We didn't want the police there, that we were going to take care of each other. We were going to stand on each other's corners and we were going to create visibility that Black and brown folks were standing with our Asian friends. And then it started ratcheting down. We are building on the idea that that thing that created this animus and this hostility is the thing we all need to push against, is the thing we need to change. Not the individual, right? Back to that rugged individual. We need to change those Black boys. No, we need to change the system that makes those Black boys feel that way. Or, you know, the Asian community. We need to support our Asian communities who are are also feeling the people spitting on them and calling them names and crossing the street. People are viscerally, not just the Black community or white community in particular, of ostracizing them and, you know, how can we support that effort? So, you know, it's the same kind of redlining all over. The circumstances of which people live in that then create the desperate actions. There's a missing healing. There's a missing care and love for the community that's been driven out. And the more we can pump that back in, I think the more solutions we can create.
0: Agreed. And also there's a missing shared history, I'll say, like how we started this question with just noting that a lot of people don't know about Black Asian solidarity in this country and the history of it. Also, I've found that a lot of my friends don't know about um, like the history of how, Chinatowns can even be created or like the history of discrimination in this country that people get together and maybe this is where they're allowed to live and they do what they can to build that community up. Um, And then that community might get pitted against another community that the same thing happened to.
2: Chinatown shows up originally as a red line community that the banks weren't going to lend to them. For, and so they had to rely on each other to feed themselves and then support the community at large. We, we had a vigil after the George Floyd last year and Angela Davis, you know, she lives in the Bay Area and she came and spoke. So we were so honored and, and she spoke, the Brown community was coming out on behalf of the black community. So she spoke and said, you know, when she was incarcerated, when the uh, FBI and the CIA incarcerated her, the Latin, Mexican, the Hispanic community came out and supported her her. But she said, my Latin ex-sisters, gay, straight. She said that community that came out and helped me through the false imprisonment that she had. And it was just this, the communities have been there for decades, for decades and decades. Internment in the Bay Area, when the Japanese were being interned, it was the Black community who made lunches and dinners and took those meals to the Japanese community, right? And they were stripped of their homes and of their property. And that community said, this is not right. And we, we will go feed this community, right? All these stories that you just, you don't ever hear about where we had to look out for each other because the system was just such a tyrannical system.
0: I hope that for some folks who are reacting to this, I hope that they can maybe try to see it as an opportunity to build long lasting and enduring relationships between the communities in which you live because the reaction right now is one thing. But if you can start to get involved with whatever movement work in your community long term, then I think folks will have more relationships to build on when things aren't so great. I want to ask you, since you mentioned that you have state level work that Greenlining is doing, can you talk about any state level policy work that is front and center for Greenlining right now?
2: There are two really big ones. So the Green New Deal, in some circles, that's like misunderstood and hijacked to be this very negative thing. But We're definitely pushing policy around linking environmental equity with economic equity, that they go hand in hand. So we have this California Green New Deal coalition we're putting together and a lot of that language now because we've had a change in administration is getting moved forward because we've done right years of work on it and here's what it would look like and how you you know change that narrative then the other big piece is that we are just fully supporting office of racial equity that it it's stand it's we're standing up an office to the governor's office that's as strong and independent as the attorney general. It needs to be independent so that each governor can't just, you know, toss it out and that's just like the attorney general, you know, is an independent, is a lawyer for the whole state. We want an office of racial equity that provides every day somebody wakes up in that position and says, Are we, what are we doing, how we're spending our money, what's the legislation we're passing, who's being elected? That solely focuses on racial equity in order to sort of tear down the systems. Thank
0: you. Is there anything that you'd like to say about how disability figures into the work that Greenlining is doing, given that, given that um, social media, especially, uh, but digital media in general has allowed people more platforms to share their experiences around disability and also to advocate for themselves, like folks who, have struggled to be heard in a system that, as you said, marginalizes large groups.
2: I, I, this is another story I think we'll take for granted when you address ableism. So, uh, you know how when you go on the sidewalk and there's, the, you know, there's the cutout that the sidewalk has a little ramp. You don't just step off the curve, right? There's a little ramp there. If you go to the airport, there's stairs or you can take a ramp. All of that was initiated by Americans for Disabilities Act, right? So the ADA created at the time, you know, any time it could be 10 to 12% of the population, but I guarantee you all of us use those ramps. All of us use those easements because it created a greater good. So when you take into account and then in, when you least expect it, if I break my leg, oh, I'm so glad there's a ramp or fighting cancer. Oh, I'm glad I can just push those buttons that open the doors, right? That when you actually embrace all of the community, you end up creating this greater good. And there was so much resistance for the, the Americans with disability. Like they pass it little by little, right? It gets implemented. And now you darn near, if you see something that doesn't have a ramp or doesn't have an easement, it doesn't have a, a you're like, this is broken <laughs> because we've now, right? Organized it and institutionalized it in such a way that it embraces that. And if you think of it that way, then you're like, oh, we could come up with some really cool Solutions, if we would address everybody's issue, you know, or everybody's ableism, whatever that looks like. And I, you know, always, I'm so grateful every time I take a ramp, I'm like, yep, that's us embracing our whole community. That's us making sure that everybody has access that everybody is treated equally. And so there's always that initial, you know, pushback of the narrative and it won't work. And then open up these solutions that invite people to reach their fullest potential, you end up lifting the whole community.
0: Thank you so much. I want to check in with our producer. I think we've covered so much. Producer, should I ask Deborah for her, like where folks can find her online, like her social media, or what are you thinking? Says yes. So we've made perfect time. So Deborah, tell people where they can find you.
2: For sure. If you're at GreenLiney on Twitter, Instagram, I would be remiss if I didn't also say we have a big summit that comes up, you know, May 5th and 6th. And at our racial equity summit, our keynote is Isabel Wilkerson on her book cast. Um, we do equity labs, which is where you can actually get in small groups and learn how to apply racial equity in your workplace and in policy work and movement work. We have a plenary where we tackle certain issues. Last year, we did criminal justice. And we had the progressive uh, attorney generals come in who were making changes in their state. So it's a it's a very interactive summit. Go to greenlining.org. I would really, really recommend that you attend. You'll get in community with folks who, you know, are movement building our policy work or even Corporate DE and I work. It's just you know, it's a collision of a bunch of folks that you can have these hear some hard conversations and then engage in some equally expansive conversations. So
0: thank you so much, Deborah. I'm so glad that you gave your time to us today. This has been such a revealing interview, and I hope it was enjoyable for you too. Is there anything you want to leave folks with? We need you all.
2: We need everyone to, we are fighting the good fight to kick down doors, create the, the rows of planting seeds and fertilizing the ground. But we do need, I, I would just really say, wherever you are in your journey as it relates to racial equity, economic equity, that there are many, many people who are lifting up the veil so that you can see brighter and you can see boldly. And I, I just want to encourage everybody, no matter where you're at, to be part of that in your community because it's so localized right now. It's local, 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 local. If you do something local, I guarantee you it'll connect you to something regional that'll connect you to something national. So, so we're, we're doing the work on behalf of each other. And I just want you all to step in and, and step forward.
0: Thank you so much, Deborah. I think we did an amazing job. Thank you
2: too. Good luck and good work, everyone.
0: I want to thank everyone for joining us on another episode of Momentum, a Race Forward podcast, and invite you to please follow us on social media. We are at Race Forward on Facebook, on Twitter, on Instagram. And please also rate and subscribe and tell a friend that they can subscribe on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, and now Pandora. Thanks again, guys.